The next event uh, is uh, just in a couple of days. It's going to be uh, Professor Harry Stout from Yale talking about the role of religion in the Civil War. Um, tonight, just as a little bit of background, we have been uh, thinking for quite some time at the center about the relationship between religion and work or the broader service activities that people are engaged in. And one of the things we know is that at Princeton and universities like Princeton, about 85% of undergraduate students have some kind of religious background, at least. And more than half of those students currently are actively practicing their faith in one way or another. And we also know that most students are preparing for a career of some kind. So how do those things fit together, or do they? Back in the 1990s, uh, with a team of colleagues, I spent quite a bit of time researching the relationships between people's faiths and their work activities, their service activities, their values, and so forth. Uh, and we found a couple of things. One is that there's a big disconnect for a lot of people. A lot of folks have what they call, or, or what we call, but it's very obvious from the way they talk, a kind of workplace self that compartmentalizes their work from the higher values that they were raised with or that they learned in school. The other thing we learned is that personal narratives count for a lot. People have stories and those are the way in which they connect their values with their work. So those are just a couple of uh, background uh, thoughts uh, as we prepare for tonight's lecture. This is part of a series we call the Princeton Lectures in Religion and Ethics, uh, which is uh, now in its uh, third year. Uh, and I'm going to call on Professor Eric Gregory from the Religion Department uh, to introduce our speaker. Professor Gregory teaches a course on Christian ethics. Eric? Thanks, Bob. Uh, our speaker tonight, Peter Ox, is chairman of the board of the Fieldstone Corporation, which is a parent of the Fieldstone Group of Companies. Uh, the Fieldstone Group of Companies has operations in Southern California, Salt Lake City area, and the San Antonio area. He is recognized as a leader among Southern California home builders and has been involved in the building industry since 1972. Uh, Peter Ox has also been personally active in an extensive series of local, national, and international charitable endeavors. Uh, he served as national chairman of the Alexis de Tocqueville Society of the United Way of America from 1990 to 1995. And in 2006, the United Way honored Peter and his wife Gail with the National Alexis de Tocqueville Award for their generous giving and service to the community and the world. A committed Christian, Ox sees his faith as integral to his business life. His Christian principles are reflected by his participatory management style and a value-driven approach to business. I'm assuming the Christian part of his identity is the most important part of his identity. However, I say this not because it's the best, but uh, just because it's listed as last in his biography. He's a graduate of Princeton University 
with a bachelor's degree uh, in 1965, majoring in economics, and has in the past served as the Alumni Advisory Committee uh, member to the Economics Department. Uh, Peter lives in Corona Del Mar with his wife Gail of 41 years. They have four married daughters and eight grandchildren, though I think one new one perhaps, nine now, 19 days old, and uh, enjoys biking, skiing, and international travel. So please join me in welcoming uh, Peter to come give his talk, A Life of Significance, the Integration of Faith and Character into the World of Work. Notice there's a sort of a shadow here, so I'm going to try to move this forward a little. Probably destroy the sound system in the process. It might help you see a little bit better. Um, I was delighted to be asked to do this, and in doing it, I decided that I wanted to address what I'm going to say tonight primarily to students. Undergraduate, graduate, doesn't matter. Now, there's some of you who are either very old students or you're not students, but that's okay. I think there's some takeaways for you as well, and I thank you for coming. And I especially want, before I start, to thank two members of the great class of 65. <laughs> it's obvious where they are. And I'm not sure if they came to give me moral support or to make sure I told the truth. So <laughs> we'll be careful there. On March the 29th, just a few weeks ago, I attended a dinner to celebrate the 25th anniversary with our company of Rick Peters, our Director of Construction for Southern California. Rick is currently our second most senior employee in the company and had already been honored earlier in the day at a luncheon for about 90 employees as well as his family. In the afternoon of that same day, our CEO had taken Rick out to play golf along with the man who had hired him in 1982, now retired from the company. It was a wonderful, warm evening filled with great stories and remembrances. The same day as that, Rick sent a letter out to all the people he had worked with at the company over 25 years. And I quote from his letter, as I reflect back to March 29, 1982, I am amazed at how many people I have worked with, learned from, shared ideas with, and stood shoulder to shoulder with through the tough times and the great times. Through the countless efforts of the Fieldstone team, we have created neighborhoods for families, reached out and helped those who were in need, stood for what we felt was right, and have offered a quality home for our customers. We've been a value-driven team focused on excellence. I, along with my family, am thankful every day to be a part of Fieldstone. On the bottom of my copy, he wrote, thank you once again, Peter, for allowing me the opportunity to join the Fieldstone team. It has been an honor. And as Rick reminisced on the past and talked to the future, he talked about the hope that in the remaining years of his career, because he's not finished yet, he'd be able to be a model and mentor for our younger employees. Today, he's 58 years old. He spent most of his working life with our company and he clearly knows it's where he wants to close out his career. He would say, if you asked him, that he has had and has today a life of significance. Joe Ferris is a young woman who works for us, about 20 years younger, who began working at Fieldstone in her late 20s. Today she's a division president and runs a major part of our operations. As I talked to her about these remarks and asked her for any reflection, she had two. She said, 
One example of why I'm still at Fieldstone, I've never been asked to compromise my personal values. A second, as I interview potential hires, I find about 75% of the people ask about the Fieldstone Foundation and how that integrates into, our, into work, your work life. It's really something that speaks to people and gives them a sense of pride in their employer. And that's a quote from her. And we formed the foundation in the early 1980s because of a desire in a tangible way to express our gratefulness for the profits that we were making out of our business. Each year we set aside a percentage of those profits for charitable purposes. Uh, and since its inception, the foundation has given away almost $20 million in the communities in which we build. The work of the foundation, which has its own separate staff, is very much related to our business. One small example, there's an annual volunteer day run by the foundation, which we started six years ago in honor of our 20th anniversary. Each year, all our divisions work on similar projects. The focus this year was serving the homeless in our communities by collecting food and working at local soup kitchens and cleaning, painting, and providing repairs at local homeless shelters. The program is entirely voluntary. If you don't work, you go to work, and it's like any other workday. But this past year, we had about 250 of our 420 employees who volunteered over 1,500 hours in their different communities in service. The workday and the other work of the foundation give significance to Joe Ferris and to all of our employees. Now, we're a privately owned company. Several years ago, for the first time, we brought in some outside shareholders, and we expanded our board of directors to include some outsiders. And at that time, we were concerned, well, how will the new shareholders see these charitable programs and the foundation activities? Well, they think it's a diversion of profit that should go to them. So we were very clear with them up front before they made the investment to know that it was a non-negotiable part of who we are. Much to our surprise today, their comment back to us is that the programs of the foundation and the values of the company give them pride in their investment, make them want to increase it even in a tough housing economy, and have caused them to think about that investment in a very long-term way and not just as a short-term opportunity to make money. Being investors in Fieldstone seems somehow to have given them an unanticipated personal significance. Now for me, myself, I stepped out of day-to-day -day management at the company in the mid-1990s, uh, shortly after uh, I turned 50. And after a sabbatical in Spain, my wife Gail and I, for the last 10 years, have been deeply engaged in the work of First Fruit, Inc., which is our private foundation. We founded it about 30 years ago. We target 100% of the efforts of First Fruit to working with Christian nonprofits in the developing world. Just as I spent my working career up into my early 50s fully engaged in the business world, I hope to spend my remaining productive years working as a team with Gail to give away the great bulk of our fortune to God's work in the world. Our hope is that we can change millions of dollars into saving or improving the lives of millions of people during that time frame. Currently, we've visited about 70 countries, and the number goes up every year. We receive great joy from this work, 
we both feel we're lead, leading lives of significance. Although my world of work has obviously moved from the for-profit sphere to the non-profit sphere. Significance can come from many sources. Some are positive, some are negative. These stories all focus on the positive. And they talk about the idea of personal significance and or they talk about it, I would say, in a more personal way. And when you think of personal significance, it is what is important to me. That will be the definition you'll use to decide on your significance. In the next time of my talking, I'm going to give you four different questions that I'd like to pose for you to consider personally. Now, this isn't just for the students. Anybody here can play this game. The first one is, what gives me significance and why? Now, for a student, is it getting top grades? Nothing wrong with that. Is it being a star on a varsity team? Is it volunteering for Habitat for Humanity in Trenton? Or working with SVC? Is it having a lot of friends? Nothing wrong with any of these. But for you personally, what is it? The next part of the same question, how might my definition of significance change over time? Have you thought about the fact that whatever it is you consider that gives you significance today, 10 years from now it might be very different. 20 years, 30 years from now, it might be different still. How will it change over time? The day you leave here, the importance of grades, the importance of being a jock, will begin to fade very rapidly. What will take its place? And the last part of that first question is, how is my desire for significance related to the world of work? Is it to be an expert in my field? Is it to be part of a highly successful enterprise? Is it working for an institution with a great reputation? Maybe it's doing well financially. Significance is defined as the quality of being important. So personal significance is defined as the quality of what's important to me. And what impo is important to you is very personal. But if you think about it a little bit, significance isn't primary, it's derivative. I can be an international chess champion. That's primary. I can win the Boston Marathon. Well, I can't win the Boston Marathon, but the winner of the Boston Marathon, that's primary. They've done that. There's no, de there's no definitional issue. You either have or you haven't. The question is, it may not be important to them. Is it important to them? So significance comes from what I value highly. Now, as we get to the issue of what is valued, we begin quickly to move to the issue of character. In my first example, take Rick Peters, the fellow I talked about. He's had a very satisfying career. He's lived according to certain values. He's highly respected within the company and within the industry. He's modeled things to his family, and today he's mentoring younger people. For him, the values of the company, and we are, as was mentioned in the introduction, a value-driven company, as an aside, I'm not going to talk about them. I have our value cards here. They talk about what our values are. That's a whole other talk. But those values have been a critical piece that have provided an organizing principle as he's been about his work. In his case, significance also involves having the respect of others who he respects. A life of significance involves a lot broader principles than just financial success or power, or becoming a great inventor. 
And if we took the time to develop it more and more in depth and explore what each of you are thinking, I would guess it would tend to move toward a life marked by values and character and possibly relationships integrated together in a way that's personally satisfying. So for example, if you choose to be a seventh grade math teacher, you can have a life of significance. If you become a US senator, you can have a life of significance there too. If you want to be a stay-at-home parent, you can have a life of significance. One thing you'll find as your life goes forward is more and more over time, you will define significance by who you are and less by what you do. Today, it's very likely to be much more what you do. And at that point, I want to shift gears and I want to talk about you or talk to you. Before I do that, however, as an aside, I know that tonight at 9 o'clock there's a memorial service for those who would like to go related to the tragedy yesterday at Virginia Tech. And if any of you wish to attend that, it's, what's the name of the hall? It's over here. Richardson Auditorium used to be Alexander Hall when I was here. And uh, just feel free at any point to get up if you don't want to migrate over there. Um, but now, changing gears, as you think of yourself and the world of work, whether it's work for a corporation or a government agency, a nonprofit, whether it's work as a professional, a doctor, an attorney, ask yourself the question, what do I bring to a potential employer? Not what do I want to get from, what do I bring to a potential employer? If a university wants to hire you as a professor, if an investment banking firm is looking at hiring you straight out of an undergraduate degree, what do you bring to them that's of value? Now you're all bright and you bring that. I think that's a given. Hopefully you have common sense along with the brightness. You probably work hard, you bring that to the table. But recently I was talking to a, a very good friend of mine who's a high-level consultant to many of the largest companies in the country and working especially at the CEO and board of directors level. He very succinctly said what employers are looking for today as they hire is character and competence. Boils right down to two things, character and competence. And for the good companies, character is by far the more important of the two. Much of competence can be acquired, learned, it's a set of skills and experiences, but character is more foundational. Think as you will be talking to a potential employer about what you're bringing to them in terms of character. Have you thought about what your character is? What are those deepest beliefs and values that you hold that create your character? Character is defined as the essential nature of a person interesting. What is your essential nature? As individuals have character, interestingly so do institutions. Typically it's called culture in an institutional sense. Now, is there an alignment between your values and character and the culture of the organization with which you're talking? As a simple example, the character of an organization may be intensely political and competitive. In your character or values, you may be comfortable with this, or you may not be. Or you may be neutral, but willing to accommodate to the culture of the organization, which is often the case. Often you won't know the character of an organization, however, until you get there, and that's perfectly understandable. The question is whether you understand your own character. 
do you understand your own essential nature? And thus the second question that I want to pose to you is what defines my character today? Should I try to deform it and develop it and my values over time as opposed to allowing them to be formed by circumstances? Do I want to work on my character or will I let my character happen? But I want to talk about another word in the title of these remarks and that word is integration. Um, I'm a person of faith. It was mentioned in the introduction. I have a certain character. You have a certain character. You may or may not be a person of faith. You may or may not be a Christian. But the question becomes how you're going to integrate who you are, your character, the essential nature of what defines you, into the world of work. And integration is a very interesting word. The root of it is the same as the word root of the word for integrity. And to integrate is to form or blend into a unified whole. Integrity is a steadfast adherence to a moral or ethical code, but integrity also is defined as a quality or condition of being complete. It comprises a personal inner sense of wholeness deriving from consistent honesty of character. And many people, as um, Mr. Or Dr. Wethnow mentioned, live compartmentalized lives. It's very common to see that in our society. They hold apart, for example, their work life and their personal life, or their work life and their faith life. They attempt to be one person at work, probably adhering to the norms and standards of where they're employed, but another different person in a different setting. Their lives are not integrated. They don't have integrity in their lives as they compartmentalize. They don't have that sense of wholeness. And no one can really do that. No one can be two different people. If you cheat on the golf course, you will cheat in business. It's just a question of where and when. If you disregard the honor code in an exam, you will find other opportunities to do something similar in other parts of your life. Maybe it's cheating on a mate. Maybe it's reneging on a business commitment. Don't ever try to convince yourself that behavior in one setting won't migrate through all of life settings, because it will. Now, for me, my faith greatly influences my character because it provides the guidance that I need to work through how I'm going to deal with difficult, challenging situations. And as I, I found that over the years, as I do this repetitively over a long period of time, it builds and changes and refines my character. And hopefully, it aligns my character with my faith. Or another way of saying it, hopefully it aligns my character with the character of Christ, because that's who I follow. Now, I'm a wee long way away from perfection, so don't think I'm even thinking those thoughts. But hopefully, I am better than I was last year, or 20 years ago, or 30 years ago. I'm on a journey. But the big thing is I have a compass to help me with that journey, and I am moving and changing as I go. For people in their early 20s, their life is not yet integrated. It tends to be made up of more bits and pieces, but it hasn't gone through the refining fire of enough experience to create wholeness and consistency. It is a process that takes time. Hopefully, by a decade later, significant 
integration has occurred. And by the time you talk to a person in their 40s, you should see a wholeness that moves across the full spectrum of life. From about age 60 through the end of life, we move from projecting competence to projecting character, mainly because we forget everything else. In the end, though, it's only character that lasts. And note that character or significance can be negative as well as positive. Uh, I'm accentuating the positives, but always keep in mind that these remarks have two sides to that coin, and they can go either direction. Character is all that lasts, no matter what the quality of the character is as life goes on. Well, what causes integration? Can it be accelerated? Can it be consciously formed? Why does it happen with some people and not with others? When I made the decision to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, I was 24. At that time, I began a process of spiritual growth or spiritual formation that continues today, and one central tool in that process was the study of the Bible, which I believe is God speaking to us in words and ideas and stories that are relevant to life today as much as when they were written two or 3,000 years ago. And I just need to tell you a little bit about myself at that point. I'm a real pragmatic person, a practical person. I also love the world of ideas, though. I grew up just up the road in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. As was mentioned, I was an economics major here in the great class of 1965. Got married four days after graduation. One of the guys here was at that wedding. My wife and I have been married almost 42 years. We've had the joy of raising four daughters, and the younger two went here as undergraduates. And today I've got nine grandchildren, eight of whom are girls, and one boy. The most recent was born on March 29th, Eric mentioned that, to a 17-year-old Hispanic girl in San Diego and adopted by my daughter Sarah and her husband. I have four great sons-in-law, all very different from each other. But my wife, all my daughters, and all my sons-in-law are also followers of Jesus, and they all have committed all of their lives to him. So over the years, the Bible became my textbook, my instruction manual, my guide for living life. In the mid-70s, this was a huge factor in my life, I got together with four other guys and formed what we called a supportive fellowship. For the next 20 years, we met together without fail every Friday morning before work to study the Bible and understand how it applied to our lives. We debated, provided counsel to each other, brought life's issues when we needed help, and regularly prayed for each other. It was a powerful, shaping, character-forming experience in my life. One of the books that we studied, and I've studied on and off for all those years, is the book of Proverbs. It's in the Old Testament. It's got 31 short chapters and an enormous amount of pithy, distilled wisdom. It's a great book to apply to an institutional setting, a business setting, because of the principles that are in it. King Solomon compiled it around 900 B.C. or so, and even today I meet with about twice a month with four men from our company to focus on applying the wisdom of Proverbs to our work life. I'll give you an example of what we do. It's one out of a hundred I could have picked. Literally, I could have opened the book and picked any verse and given you an example from that. You determine whether it's relevant today or not. It comes from a paragraph in the third chapter, and in a modern translation, here's what it says. Don't lose sight of good planning and insight. 
Hang on to them. They keep you safe on your way. They keep your feet from stumbling. You can lie down without fear and enjoy pleasant dreams. You need not be afraid of disaster or the destruction that comes upon the wicked, for the Lord is your security. He will keep your foot from being caught in a trap. It may be one short paragraph, but it has a lot of powerful thoughts. And in our group, as we would look at applying a passage like that to our lives, we'd start with a key thought, the value of good planning and insight, how it keeps us on track in the business. We might discuss how we could implement better planning in our individual roles. But then all kinds of other ramifications begin to appear that are important for work life, but they go way beyond just work life. What helps you to sleep at night? What is it that keeps you from being afraid that some disaster will overtake you? Where does fear come from? Do I believe in a God that can keep me from pitfalls and traps? Somehow over the years, the process of reading through the Bible and meeting regularly with a small group to apply its wisdom in my life has changed me. In some sort of almost mystical way, I've seen God infusing his thoughts into me, and then as I moved toward thinking about my own world, I've seen ways of incorporating his thoughts into my business life, my relationship with my wife, the nonprofit work I do. In other words, into every part of life. There's a wholeness there, an integrity, an integration that has been occurring that is enormously satisfying and productive on one level, while on another, it continues to shape my character and deepen my values. So my third question to you relates to integration, and it's this. What will help me integrate my life over the coming years? What will hinder or sidetrack me and drive me instead toward a compartmentalized life? What will help me? What will hinder me? They're competing forces. They're always pushing and tugging at you. And life itself is the battleground where faith is tested and character is formed. It happens through life's experiences. In my late 20s, I was the executive vice president of a startup development company. And as I started to get into the guts of the accounting systems and numbers of the company, I discovered the following. We worked with subcontractors to build houses, and the subcontractor would give us a contract and we'd agree on a price for them to build some group of houses. And they would go out and they would do the work over a period of time and we would pay them in stages as the work was complete. But we would hold on to the last 10%, it was called the retention payment, and they didn't get paid that until 60 days after the house was completed so that we knew that they'd paid all their bills and the customer was happy and everything was good. And at that point, if they billed us, work was properly done, we'd send them the check. But what I found was, if they didn't bill us, we never sent them the check. Um, and most subcontractors, you have to understand, were small, inefficient, disorganized operators in those days. They may have had a lot of skills, but accounting was not one. So in probably one case out of, I don't know, five, the subcontractor would never bill for that last 10%, and they'd never even know it. The company was looking at this as an additional source of profit, found money. But as I looked at it and thought it through, the more I thought about it, the more it felt to me like stealing. The price had been agreed to, the work was done, the money was owed. 
Consequently, since I was fortunate to have the power of decision-making at that time, I said, we're not going to do that anymore. If the work's been done properly, time has passed, we will automatically send them a check for that last 10%. They don't even have to bill us. Now, I got low-grade pushback on this, not to make this decision, because it was an easy source of additional profit. And besides, the, prob the sub probably had a big profit in the work anyway, or at least that's what people were thinking. And it was sort of found money, and we didn't have a lot of money, and we were growing fast, we needed the money, but to me it was black and white. I couldn't tolerate being in an atmosphere that would so devalue people who were working hard for us, and so the policy was changed. Now, enter the law of unintended consequences. The first thing that happened after this change was made was that I found our employees feeling much better about themselves and about the company. There had been a certain low level of discomfort and uneasiness about this policy, but it had never been articulated and the policy had never been questioned. Our people actually felt that the new policy was the right thing to do, and that started a process of them becoming better advocates for the company in other areas, more willing to speak out, more willing to challenge inequities or stand up for what was right. Next, the subcontractors were astounded at this change in policy. And over time, we found ourselves able to get better performance from them, to call on people for favors when it was critical for us, and to move from an adversarial relationship to a much more cooperative one. But I didn't see any of that coming. I made a decision based on what I felt was right, based on what I saw as the values of my faith brought into the world of work. And in the process, unbeknownst to me at the time, I was taking a step toward personal integration of my life as well. But the last thing I want you to think is that when you do these things, everything turns out right and you get awards and accolades and big cheers because it does not always work out that way. Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. We had a situation a few years ago on an earth-moving operation on a large piece of land. A soils engineer who was a subcontractor to us or contractor to us discovered some contaminated soil. In this case, it had traces of DDT from an earlier farming operation, and that's just forbidden in residential construction. And he allowed it to be buried on the site. Proper procedure was, it to, was for it to be hauled off to a special dump site. Our people didn't know it was happening, but it was caught later as we performed certain routine tests. When we realized what had happened, we had a tough choice to make. The chances were no one would find this out. It was buried. Practically speaking, none of us felt the health hazard was real. But it wasn't right. It was not in accordance to what you're supposed to do. So we immediately gave the local city all the information we had, told them what had happened, said it never should have happened, and asked what we needed to do to make it right. Now, they weren't pleased with it. And after additional testing, they required us to spend about a million and a half dollars identifying and hauling off the unsuitable soil. There weren't any accolades, we didn't get any awards, and probably the only good news was because of our quick affirmative action, we weren't fined. Doing the right thing at times can be very painful. It's that challenging test of what you really believe when you move your values from concept to reality. In the process, you find out what your values really are. And so my fourth and last question for you is this. If my values are put to the test in the world of work or elsewhere, 
how will I decide what to do? It's not what will I do. It's not do I know my values. It's how will I decide what to do. It's a process question. And it could be a process of how you go about, or a question of how you go about processing to make a decision. It could be a question of thinking about what my values are now. It could be a question of who could I go to for wise counsel in this sort of situation. It's actually really good to give some thought to a question like this in advance because, number one, I'll guarantee you, you will come up in whatever work world setting you're in against a values test at some point. And number two, it often occurs suddenly, unexpectedly, and where an instant response is required. Shifting gears a little bit, my youngest daughter, Abigail, was in the class of 1997 here, as was her husband, Ryan Frederick. Now, in just a few weeks, they're going to be back here to celebrate their 10th reunion. Recently, I asked them some questions in preparation for these remarks. And first, I asked them what their thought process was 10 years ago at this point in their senior year about life's next stages. And second, how it's changed between then and now. Not life, but the thought process. At that point in time, neither was dating seriously. And therefore, as they were looking at making decisions about what comes next, they were doing it as individuals. The only person they had to worry about was themselves. She assumed she'd wind up somewhere in the nonprofit sector, and for her it was important to be working for an organization that was doing something for other people. That's what she was about. She said to me, beyond that, I felt life would emerge. Ryan wanted to be in the business world. He wanted to be back in the San Francisco Bay Area where he grew up, but his plans beyond that were vague as well. Now, five years later, they were married, and today they've got a 27-month-old an adorable 27-month-old, my little sweetheart, and an eight-month-old. Today, their life is, by the way, named for me, my only grandson. Today, their life is much more complex, and decision-making is in the context of a family and not an individual. While they have far less free time, this was interesting to me, than 10 years ago, they spend much more time thinking about future plans and how they all fit together. They're trying to integrate career decisions, involvement in their local church and community, family responsibility, and relationships with like-minded people into a whole of life that's satisfying. As Ryan said, he said, I'm thinking now about how I want to live my life over a lifetime and not just what company I will work for next. Very different mindset. And as he said in talking about his life, you don't realize when you get out of college, it's a gradual thing. I thought that was a very interesting statement, and so I asked him to explore that a little more for me. And he said, well, a set of experiences has influenced my perspective. It's deepened my thought. There have been negative experiences as well as positive in the last 10 years. And so I know today what I don't want to be around as well as what I do. All of which is to say, if you haven't figured this significance thing out today, don't worry about it. The same for integration. If you're a student, look around you. None of your friends have figured that out either. Now let me bring together some of these thoughts in a little more succinct way in the concept level. Uh, first, we all have a character. That's our essential nature. Faith impacts that character and helps to form it. Out of our character come our values. And then we apply our values 
against life's experiences, some of which are good and some of which are difficult. In a healthy life, that will lead to integration in our work life and of our work life to all of our life. And in the process, we'll deepen and refine our essential nature, our character, and then it loops back and the loop continues. All of that taken together will lead to a life of significance. With my definition of significance, or what is important, being powerful character applied consistently to life's events. So think of that. Can you, do you want to define your significance as your character powerfully developed and applied consistently to all the events of your life? I've left you with four questions related to significance, character, integration, values. And they sort of reflect, as I was thinking about it, a distillation of my own personal journey since I set out from here 42 years ago to try to figure life out. Had I not early in that process become a follower of Jesus, I think my journey would have taken a very different direction. I'm eternally grateful for the way that I've chosen to go. I commend it to you highly. But I want to close for you with a metaphorical picture of your life to come. You're starting on a hike in the wilderness. Some places there's a trail, some places there's no trail. Some places there are multiple trails. You look ahead in the far distance. You see me standing on a mountaintop. And you think, I want to be on that mountaintop someday, or I want to be on a mountaintop somewhere out there one day. But the only way you can get there, the only way, is to make the hike. Now, between you and me, there's a long journey. There are a lot of hills and a lot of valleys. As you start out, you may have a compass, and you may not. I have, you may be in good shape, and you may not. I have a son-in-law who was a Navy SEAL. I've had long talks with him on how one gets into the SEALs, and what makes you successful, because as you probably know, the washout rate is enormous. Not the toughest make it. Not those in the best condition. Not the biggest. Not the brightest. It's those with the most endurance and the most fortitude. Those who have the ability to persevere regardless of circumstances. The issue is actually an issue of character and values. And so on your journey from today to that far distant mountaintop, Understand that getting in shape equates with forming great character. The journey is going to have stages to it. Some are going to be level and under sunny skies. Others will be through trailless, tangled, hot, humid underbrush. Hills will be climbed. And while the climb might be hard, when you get to the top, you'll have the benefit of vista and perspective. But there's always another slightly higher hill. There'll be times when you're discouraged. There'll be times when you're lost, when you feel that the journey itself may not be worthwhile. There'll be times when you'll need to turn back because you've gone on a wrong trail. And there may be a sense of wasted time until you regroup and refocus on a new, better path. All the while, though, you're gaining experience, you're gaining conditioning, and you're getting better at understanding the terrain that you're passing through. Let's say the mountain I'm on is an integrated life of faith, character, and work, a life of significance because of who I've become more than of what I've done. If you're a student, 
I've been on the same journey you're about to commence and from a similar starting point. If you're not, for those of our audience who are not students, you're also on the journey. You're just at a different point on the journey. Soon after I started, I acquired a compass, a vibrant, alive faith, and using it has been enormously valuable for me for the many daily small or large course corrections that are necessary as I'm hiking those trails. For me, the compass is Christ himself. For you, it may also be, or perhaps you have a different compass. It's a hard journey to make without a good compass. Know what yours is, whatever it is. Consult it regularly. And somewhere along the journey, you'll recognize as you reflect that if you have a good compass, your life is better integrated than it used to be. That it's more whole, it's more consistent. That your character is deepening, your values are clearer, and the journey has become easier as a result, even if the terrain is difficult. I hope and pray that you will learn to enjoy the journey, even when it's the most challenging, and that you will be able to say, in my own way, for who I am and where I am, I am having a life of significance. Thank you very much. Uh, Dave Michelson asked me to give a response, and he said, how about two to three minutes, um, which is the first time I've ever asked to give a two to three minute response, but I'm very grateful for it, um, because uh, the plan is for me to say a few words. I actually have two questions, and then open things up to the audience that Peter has graciously agreed to uh, field questions. Okay. Um, first, I want to say thank you uh, for your work and for this talk. Uh, I think it raises important issues that are very seldomly publicly discussed at a university, uh, except for perhaps the opening and closing ceremonies of the academic year. When it's invoked, and then we get busy with the school year. Uh, I teach in the humanities, and I take it one of my tasks is to try to wake students up to some of the issues you were raising about significance and life and integration. They're issues that they will face uh, for the rest of their life. Ancient philosophy sometimes talked about philosophy as a way of life, a way of integrating contemplation and action. Uh, in the Protestant tradition, there's a similar language of vocation or a sense of calling uh, where you integrate all of your spheres of life under a rubric. Two questions, maybe. These are perhaps the negative sides of things that you mentioned. Studies uh, suggest that the current generation of undergrads desperately want to integrate uh, their work and their faith of whatever kind, religious or non-religious. Okay. Uh, I'm not a sociologist, so I don't really read studies, but I like to say studies suggest every once in a while. <laughs> I find in talking to undergrads, most of the undergrads, say Princeton undergrads today, they're not idealists, and they're not really pessimists. They're eager pragmatists, young Tocquevillians wanting to do what they can 
perhaps after they make a lot of money on Wall Street, thinking that that's the way to do it. The problem seems to be, how can you manage all of that given the demands of work, family, personal ambition? We're not just victims of capitalism, as the ominous poster uh, suggests, perhaps, which reminded me of the iron cage that sociologists talk about. We like it this way. The number of hours we work is exponentially greater than it was 20 years ago. The number of hours we spend on leisure is exponentially smaller. We work and work, we consume and we consume. These are our spiritual exercises. Is it a delusion to think we can resist this? Now I take it that you think the language of vocation can be translated into secular terms. How much of this integration is something we can do on our own? And how much of it does it demand institutions and communities that can help us resist the pressure not to integrate? And what are those institutions, given the large number of undergraduates and Americans who no longer find themselves in communities of faith that helped you in your journey in meeting with people, in giving you symbols, in giving you institutions? So that's just one uh, question. Okay. I'm an Augustinian, so I tend to be pessimistic. So this is a pessimistic question. All right. A second, much quicker point, and this uh, is a bit unfair because it wasn't the theme of your talk per se, but I've been interested lately in philanthropy. Uh, in 2006, over 20 Americans gave over $100 million to charity. Okay. Some of the donations were, were famously much larger. Warren Buffett's donation to the Gates Foundation, uh, $31 billion is now valued at about $46 billion. Just in one year, the increase. Okay. There's been a massive enrichment of wealth among the super rich in America. Many of them are young, very young. My college roommates are retired because of the money they made. Uh, I graduated from college in 1992 from a small university in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, where, uh, like many Princeton undergraduates, uh, they went into very successful business careers. So philanthropy is a good thing. Okay? That, that sounds like something that's not too controversial for an ethics professor to say. Right? But critics argue that philanthropy may be morally good, even though there are mixed motives for why we give, but it's socially bad. Private foundations and private philanthropy distract from the public good. They promote government by contract. They are not thought through in their investment decisions. They are unregulated. They donate for immediate and short-term effect rather than long-term planning. This is a standard criticism of charity on behalf of social justice. Ralph Nader, when he ran for president, had a slogan, a society with more justice needs less charity. A society with more justice needs less charity. Now, I take it deep in the Christian tradition is an affirmation of the face-to-face -face work of compassion and the desire of integrating your faith, your work, and personal experience with those in need 
And I find many students, religious or not, Christian or not, today at Princeton are attracted to the work of non-governmental organizations because it seems to free them from the dehumanizing bureaucracy of the nation state and allow them to live integrated lives of compassion. So, briefly in short, how does philanthropy and charity fit into being in the nation's service and the service of all nations? So two sort of quick points. How can we resist all of the work we do in order to integrate and what institutions will help us? And two, this criticism of the role of foundations and charity in American public life today. Two very simple questions, and after I dispatch of those, we'll open it up to the audience. And thankfully, I'm on, I'm on West Coast time, and I'll stay as long as you want. Um, the first question, they're both, they're both very good questions, very appropriate questions. Uh, in the institutional sense, your question, your first question actually has two parts. What about the institution I find myself in, and what about the institutional communities I've I need or am not or am a part of that might be able to help me on my journey. First of all, the institution you find yourself in. There are fields that bear a lot of fruit, that have great yields. And there are rocky, stony fields in which it's hard to get a crop. And there are dry, deserty fields in which you can't get anything. And that's a metaphor for the kinds of institutions that are out there that you might find yourself working in. Some are very supportive. Some are reasonably benign, and others are actively hostile. Not necessarily to people of faith, but to people of strong values and strong character. And so your first challenge is what kind of an institution do you find yourself in and do you find yourself in an institution that is so antagonistic that you may have to leave it? One of my son-in-law's um, experiences that he referred to that have shaped him over the last 10 years was being in an institution, in this case it was a business institution, that was highly unethical. He didn't realize it at the time, even when he started to perceive it, it took him a long time before he really saw what was going on. And he realized, I cannot stay there. I don't have to necessarily leave today. I'm not being asked to do anything unethical. But as soon as I can disengage myself, I have to do that. And you could find yourself in that kind of an institution. On a more proactive basis, you can find an institution that is hospitable to your values and choose to go to work for such a, a company, a university, uh, a law firm or whatever. We have people who search out our company in California and they say, and I could cite you many individual cases, I want to come to work for your company. This is where I want to be. Now, do you have any positions? Is there any way I can fit in? No, not today. I'll wait. Call me when you do. Because they know that our company as an institution will be very hospitable to their values and encouraging them, encourage them in carrying them out. But whatever institution you're in, what I have found for individuals is that they cannot go it alone. It is the extremely rare person 
that can go it alone in terms of acting on the values they have on a day-to-day basis in their work life. Um, In fact, personally, I don't think we as human beings are made to operate alone. I think we're made to operate in community. Now, the community may be you and your spouse. Your spouse may be your wise counselor, your sounding board, the person that you wrestle with the tough decisions and, and receive at the very least a listening ear. If you're in a community of faith, it may be people from that community. For me, that's absolutely what it was. If you're not, I think it's much harder. Uh, but you can hopefully find like-minded people that can help you, especially when the going gets tough, to think through these issues and make decisions. So institution, how hospitable is the setting to my values? Personal side, who can I find to be part of a community with me that I can trust and counsel with over a period of time as I wrestle with life's decisions? The second question is an interesting one. And I think, if I remember correctly, one of the things that you said was that the critics of philanthropy say that it's too short-term, it's not well enough thought out, it's not well executed. In other words, at the base, government programs are. Well, I would challenge the basic assumption underlying their comment to begin with. Um, And I would challenge it because I have seen and read some of those kinds of comments. And when I've engaged people who've tried to, to talk that kind of view, what I find is that they don't really believe it. They just read it somewhere, and now they're parenting it back. And as we talk, very quickly, they back off of the position. But I would guarantee you that the people who are writing those things and putting forth that kind of what to me is a very ivory towerish kind of argument have not been in the villages that I've been in Malawi seeing the families and the individuals dying of AIDS with a corrupt government system and totally corrupt institutions throughout the company from top to bottom and nowhere that they can turn. And I could give you chapter and verse, you pick the country, I'll give you the story because I've been there and I've talked to the people and we are engaged with them and we are bringing water to communities in Indonesia and water to communities in Africa where before we were there, young children were walking six miles a day one way with a water jar on their head to bring back whatever they could carry because that's the only way the family could get clean water to drink. And I I could go on with story after story, so I give very little credence to that particular argument. Now, is all philanthropy well done? Absolutely not. Is some of it very capricious and very short-term and will have no great lasting impact? Absolutely, no question about it. But it is a million people making a million decisions, and some of those decisions will be very good, and some of those decisions are going to survive and thrive and grow, and I take as an example of that in a positive sense the work that Bill Gates is doing, Bill and Melinda Gates, who I, have, I happen to know personally and have talked to about charitable things. They are very well-meaning people, but they're also very bright people. They're people who are very, very strategic. He is one of the brightest people I have ever been exposed to in my life. And he does not suffer fools gladly, and he does not beat around the bush. He goes for the jugular 
whether it's in Microsoft or whether it's in trying to develop a vaccine for malaria. And he is getting results, and he is engaging enormous resources toward causes that were languishing and absolutely would not have been acted upon without their effort and without their fortune. And I think that's pretty admirable. And so I would rather look at the Bill Gateses, and I think actually there is a lot of very sustaining kind of work going on out there in this country and around the world. I think one of the, uh, another example of that is uh, the New York Times columnist, Nicholas Kristof, who for a long time trumpeted some of these concerns and arguments promoting America needs to give more foreign aid, et cetera, uh, as a government policy, which may or may not be uh, a good argument. But then he went to Africa and he kept writing these columns about how everywhere I go, all I see are these Christian nonprofit groups that are, you know, addressing poverty, addressing it. And so he started to uh, change his tune a little bit on pitting charity versus justice. The other thing you see, without my trying to be or wanting to be cynical, when you go to Africa, is large conferences in five-star hotels sponsored by big international government agencies. I have a little bias here. <laughs> uh, I think we can open things up now. Uh, anybody has any questions? Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Um, I kind uh, of always believe in doing charity very close to the hand. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I have a former colleague who a year ago I don't blame her. And um, what, what about the structure that says won't be two rights? Where does that fit in? I mean, sometimes maybe the example of the uh, very poison might be one, although I actually think a lot of that is happening in the industry. It's all kinds of things. Um, I love engaging around the scripture, but you're going to have to find me a verse reference for that because I don't know offhand what that is. I have a Bible here if you'd like to check. Maybe later we can do that. Okay. Uh, but there's, there's no question, just a comment, because I, I think he raises some very good points. Because an institution is called Christian, does not make it perfect, and in some cases makes it no better than a secular organization, and in some cases not as good as. So it's you have to be very cautious with too quickly blessing one or condemning another. The challenge is to look internally what are the values and 
how are they actually doing what they do? We purposely do not call ourselves a Christian company because of some of those kinds of things, because we, we have to compete in a secular workplace. We don't want to be typecast, but we do try to run the company according to Christian values. Well, it was fun. What? Be a little more precise with your question. I'd, I'll be happy to talk about it. Okay. Um, just while, while you were sort of making all this money mm-hmm. and now you've decided to give it away, I Yeah. Well, I think one important thing was that we were giving it away continuously while I was making it. You don't suddenly say, well, I've been doing this all my life. Now I'm going to stop that. I'm going to start doing this. It doesn't work that way. Your future is planted in seeds of your past. It's always like that. Your character is, what you do is, who you marry is, and on and on. And so we were practicing generosity and learning, grappling with the issues of setting money aside and giving it away from the time we were first married. It's just that we're in a phase now where we can do it much more actively with the help of staff and a much more focus than we could before. Uh, it's a very good question. Um, I don't know if you're taping all of this, but if you are, you're probably missing the questions. So should I repeat the questions? I'll, I will try to do that. I'm, I just thought of it. I'm sorry. The question is why Africa, why not uh, inner city uh, New York or Trenton or anywhere in the United States? In our case, it's a very simple answer. It's a matter of calling. We truly feel that God has called us to work where we work, which is in the developing world. So we do nothing in the U.S. in the foundation. Now, Gail and I do personally. We don't through the foundation. We do nothing in Western Europe, nothing in Japan. It's all in the less fortunate countries of the world. I know lots of people who are called to work in the inner cities in this country or work on issues in this country, and I applaud them. I'm behind them all the way. It's just that everybody can't do everything. There are critical needs here. There are critical needs there. No question. You mentioned the small group that you met with on mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been part of the same church for, gosh, I think since the early 70s, so close to 35 years now. I've given them a lot, I know. <laughs> Uh, the question is, have I been part of a worshiping community all these years, and what have they given me? They've, they've given me a lot. Uh, they've given me a lot of opportunities to serve, uh, very seriously. I've uh, served on the Board of Elders for many years in that church. I ser- currently, for the last uh, about eight years, have been running a sort of a think tank that is advisory to the Board of Elders. It's been a lot of fun. Um, they, but they were instrumental as we raised our kids in providing a spiritual home for our kids. 
they've provided uh, a very large worshiping community for us, a place to take friends, a place to feel proud that we belong to most of the time. Um, they've provided great sources of teaching um, and many other opportunities. So it's been, a, it's been a wonderful relationship in every respect. But more of my spiritual growth came out of meeting with those four guys than any other single thing I did, I believe, as I look back over that long period. The question is, um, it seems today that, that students, younger people, are much more intense about the issue of significance, personal significance. And if that's true, can that be linked in some way with a decline in the um, reliance on large institutions as a source um, of where their significance might have come from in the past or just a, a lesser degree of concern about it. You pose it in an interesting way. I haven't thought about that. There's no question you're right with the first half of your statement. I find young people, as I talk to them today, are intensely concerned with the issue of personal significance, wondering how they're going to get it, what they can do about it, and so forth and so on. They're really wrestling with that issue. Uh, at the same time, um, there has been a long-term decline in faith in large institutions. Um, although there's some evidence that that is now changing in the younger generation, the youngest of the generational cohorts today. But they have extremely high standards. They're very easily disappointed, even if they put their faith in an institution. So that's challenging as well. Uh, it could be more of the isolation of the individual that's happening today than did in the past. I know at my time, when I was a senior in this university, if you'd asked me about significance, I would have said, what? Come again? What's that all about? You know, we don't talk about that. We're much more concerned with how we're going to get a job and how we're going to support ourselves when we get out of here because we don't have any money. Maybe uh, two or three more questions. Uh, yes, in the back row. You. Yeah. Okay. By the way, when, when we're finished as a group, uh, if you would like to stay, I'll, I'll continue to dialogue with you as long as you would like. Go ahead. Um, you had mentioned some stories about your family in your lecture. Yeah. And um, what I like to do with my own students is tell some of those personal accounts. Uh, could you elaborate how your work and your wife's work in these third world countries have perhaps influenced them in their own lives and in their own work ethic? Mm -hmm. Thank you. How, how has the work uh, my wife and I have been doing in our foundation impacted our family? That would be the question. Most 
Thank you, Ron, and I agree. For the tape, my good friend Ron Wesson, former or classmate, has said the most impressive person is not the one that they sent to represent the family. It's my wife, Gail. So, and I agree with that. I just did. Thank you for coming down. Um, we've tried very hard to um, to think through that question. How? Because our family's clearly been impacted. So what's caused that? Well, a hilarious story. Um, we're all linked together by email. So the family's always exchanging jokes and comments and snide remarks back and forth with each other. It's just really funny what goes on. And last week, my youngest daughter had come across some article on visiting Papua New Guinea and said it's a really dangerous place, and if you're going to go there, only go with guides and security and you know, people get killed there, and it's just terrible. And she said, so if it's so bad, why is it our parents all took us all there when we were very young, this was 20 years ago, and not only that, we just wandered around through the country. And everybody in the family starts emailing back and forth, yeah, what kind of parents did we have anyway? What were they doing? But they, what they were doing was they were talking with a sense of pride, saying, hey, I've been there. That's not so bad. My whole family's been there. We do things like that. That's who we are. All of our daughters and all of our son-in-laws have served on our foundation board for at least two years. They did that just to get the experience. They all did it willingly. They all came to all the meetings. They all did all the work. They showed up, in other words. And they all, over a longer period of time, would like to come back on the board. Very recently, our oldest daughter and her husband just have, I mean, just a couple of months ago. My youngest daughter works as staff to the foundation. Now that she's had two children, she can only work a day and a half a week. But she has an absolute passion for it. She's extremely good at what she does. And she may well be, in some future time, the one who becomes the chairman of the board of the foundation. Who knows what directions that all will take. They all have discretionary money from the foundation they get every year to give toward our causes, not our organizations. They can give it to any organization they want, but it has to be Christian cause. It has to be in the third world. They love doing that. The first few years they were getting used to it. Now there's not a penny of that that ever goes unspent. And in fact, my youngest daughter makes sure of that because about usually uh, September, she starts hounding her sisters, say, you still have money left. What are you going to give to? How can I help you? And they love doing that. And we asked them at a family meeting we had two years ago, we said, so does this, what about your personal giving? Does this mean that you're not giving anything personally? Does this take the place of that? They looked and they said, is this a trick question? Of course we're giving personally. This has nothing to do with that. This is a whole fun thing we get to do outside of our own giving. So somehow it seems to be working. Can, can we ask, uh, because they're going to leave. Rick, go ahead. Of the 
young entrepreneur is going to make a million dollars before he's 30 years old. The last five years, I've been involved in the entrepreneurial network. I work for one. I find them to be totally self-centered, narcissist, junior Donald Trump, uh, treat people like toilet paper, uh, the question is, do I have any comment on the very young entrepreneurs, wildly successful and totally self-centered as they march on through life? Well, there's some of them that are definitely like that. There's no question about it. Um, on the other side, without downplaying the importance of what you said, because there are some just very difficult qualities that many of them have today, there also is an unbelievable amount of energy, creativity, willingness to try new things that haven't been tried before, some of which is working and some of which will sustain and survive. Uh, and so in the ruthless capitalistic process, what you hope is that there's a winnowing out and the best retain their fortunes and the best givers do the best job of giving those fortunes away. But it is an interesting time, and we've never seen the likes of it. Maybe one last question, and then we can continue more informally. Yeah. You mentioned uh, this compass uh, that your faith gave you. And you, I think if I heard you correctly, you said that in the end, really, when you were 24, mm -hmm. which struck me as a rather late age, actually, after you graduated from college, after you were married. And I was wondering, was there some precipitating events which uh, gave you that compass? Uh, the question relates to, did I not acquire my compass, my faith, until I was 24? And uh, the asker said that strikes him as a rather late age. And it's because you got an abbreviated version of the story because of the shortness of time. I grew up in a church-going family. I was exposed to tenants of the faith from all during my growing up time, but I had a crisis of faith in my early 20s where I was challenged with the issue of whether I was turning, willing to turn my whole life over to Christ or whether my faith would be more compartmentalized and sort of partial. Um, and that was the decision I wrestled with, and it was 24 when I made that commitment. Join me. I acquired the compass earlier. I just never took it out of my pocket till after that. I sobered up. <laughs> Please join me in thank you. I believe we also have some refreshments and coffee and uh, cookies and water and soft drinks, etc., uh, to help yourself out in the lobby. And uh, Peter expressed he's happy to continue chatting.